0: Hey, and before getting into the teaching this morning too, just a quick word or reminder. Hospitality is a good thing for Christians to practice. We had several people at our house, I think it was Friday night. It didn't require much. We had a great time, watched some funny videos, had some serious videos, had some prayer time. It was just encouraging. You know, it's easy to come into church and not necessarily really have any meaningful involvement with anyone else. And that'd be really a shame. So just the kindness we extend to others in hospitality by just acknowledging that they're there. Hi, I'm Mike. What's your name? Or an invitation to lunch at your house or at Wendy's or McDonald's or whatever. Uh, It means a lot. It means a lot. Just the recognition that someone else matters. And as we grow as a church, hospitality, to be intentional about hospitality becomes really important. Uh, When we had uh, started as new Christians in a church years ago, we just started going and we didn't know anyone there. And we went up to another family after service and we invited them to lunch. And they said they were getting ready to come over and invite us to lunch too. At the same time, we were new... You didn't have to be there long. So if you're new here or older, just intentionally being hospitable to others from a greeting or a how are you to let's do lunch or let's just get to know each other a little better, really, really important. Something that honors God, certainly. Let's pray and we'll get into the message. Father, would you honor yourself? Lord, we talk about giving you glory and and I'm afraid I know at times I just give lip service to that it's a phrase it's the right thing to say but lord would you magnify yourself would you glorify yourself as we look in your word this morning would you unveil more of your glories to our eyes in jesus name amen i'm looking forward to i'm really looking forward actually to being back at care paravel school and the sunday school start restarting sunday school there's a lot of great classes it's going to be very fun. We're shaking things up a little bit by, by uh, the schedule, doing traditional Sunday school classes that are age segregated, doing an integrated Sunday school class session in the middle of that, in which we all get together in one room at the same time. Uh, they're great opportunities. A Bill Bider's class coming up on end times will be great. Usually prophecy is sort of a high interest topic most of the time. And God has said a lot of things about the future. And you don't have to have some kind of uh, strange mentality to find prophecy fascinating because God's put so much of it in His Word and it's there for a purpose. Ultimately, the end of Revelation says, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That is that if we get fixated on Antichrist and timetables, we're missing the point. It's about Christ ultimately. But the study will be great. I encourage you to be there. That's the adult class. And, and actually, Bill and I will be covering some of the same ground as I teach through Second Thessalonians, and Bill's in that topic generally in Sunday school. So Bill, I hope we don't conflict too much. I hope we're on the same page, but we'll see as this goes along, I think we are. When I was a young Christian, I remember reading the Book of Revelation for the first time, and it was so confusing, and I had no idea what I'd just read. And I knew because it was God's word that that shouldn't be the case, that God had given us his word to understand it, that it should have meaning, that it should have effect in my life. And so I prayed and asked God, Lord, would you show me what this book is all about? What's going on here? And I feel like he did over time and reading and studying and praying a lot. But I was offended uh, by things I read in Revelation. And not just there, but lots of parts of the Bible. As a new Christian bringing my worldly informed mentality to the Bible, I was offended by things I read because I didn't think what I was reading corresponded to what I understood as fair or right. It seemed odd. So for instance, in Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11, there's a description of a scene in heaven in which a scroll is being unrolled. And this scroll shows what God is going to be about. And so each time a seal, a clip, is removed from the end of the scroll, it opens a little bit more fully, and you see another scene. Well, in this text, the fifth seal is removed. And this is what John sees. He sees souls, people, without their resurrection body, souls, under an altar in heaven. And they're crying out to God. And they're crying out for vengeance. Because they were murdered. They were slaughtered, some translations say. They were murdered, and they're calling out to God for vengeance. And God says, well, guys, I hear you. For now, put on these white robes and wait. I'm not ready to judge your murderers on the earth because the number of your fellow martyrs, it's not full yet. So as a young Christian, I'm thinking, now hold on. I thought Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I thought we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. And here are these souls in heaven crying out for justice on their murderers. And here is God sitting by, watching for those of His followers on earth to be murdered, to be slaughtered. And I'm thinking, Lord, I don't get it. So they're in heaven, they're calling out for vengeance, for justice... And you're sitting by, you're not coming in and delivering these guys on earth. You're saying, no, there's more of you coming, and I'm just waiting for that number to be filled up. I had trouble with this. It's like, this isn't right the way I thought, God, you did righteousness. This isn't fair the way I thought you did fairness. And so, you know, I'm I'm compelled to ask myself, who sets the rules here anyway? Who decides what's right and what's wrong? And... And how do I wrap my mind around God's way of doing things? This is a huge issue. It's an immense issue. It's a difficult issue for us. Last week, we looked at this issue of God's saint suffering. And of course, death, martyrdom, is in some ways the ultimate form of suffering. And we said there that God said He would use the difficult soils of inhospitable suffering to create or to grow fruit in us, specifically faith, hope, and love. This week we're looking more focusedly at this issue of judgment generally. This is a big topic, and we'll actually spend two weeks in the rest of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we try and answer sort of the who, what, where, when, and why questions about God's judgment on one hand, as well as His reward of the redeemed on the other. But it's a big and it's a difficult subject. And let me just say, starting, that God's judgment is one of the hardest things for us to emotionally grapple with. And there's some reasons for that, and we'll talk about some of those later. I find myself emotionally feeling a little wasted, frankly. Every time I seriously consider... God's judgment on the unsaved. And sort of eternity also, eternal consequences. So I was going over this yesterday and I realized last night and this morning, I sort of feel empty a little bit because it's emotionally, it's really hard to deal with. So we're dealing with a very difficult subject this morning. Hang with me. We'll work through this. And I'd say too, um, things like the judgment of God, We might get information in a moment and we say, I read this and the Bible says this. I believe the Bible, so I believe this. But that's not the same as saying we get it internally and emotionally. We sort of know how to see that or how to view that in a way that vindicates God as it should, but also recognizes the truth as it really is. So sometimes if we deal with a difficult topic, it takes time. And it takes prayer and it takes just meditation and thoughtfulness to to put our emotional arms around that, not just our mental faculties. So so if this is hard for you this morning, it's a hard subject, that's okay. That's where most of us are coming from, and and it's something we get our arms around oftentimes very slowly indeed. So we're in 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll be in verses 5 through 10 this morning. And Paul has just said, he's talked about the fruits of faith, hope, and love being uh, produced in the rocky soil of affliction. That's where we pick up at verse 5. He continues there, It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength in that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be admired by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So Paul's bringing up the subject of righteous judgment and righteous reward. If you look back there at verse 5, he says that the fruitfulness of the Thessalonians in the face of persecution was evidence of the rightness or the righteousness of God counting them worthy of His kingdom. Paul says that's right. That's righteous. Verse 6 says it's righteous for God to afflict the persecutors of the Thessalonian believers. That's right. He also says at verse 7, it's right or it's righteous for God to reward the persecuted Thessalonians also. Right or righteous is an important theological word for us. We've got to get our hands around this a little bit. Paul here says it's righteous. And bottom line, righteous in the, in the Scriptures means that a thing or a person is absolutely what it should be, what it ought to be, and no less. A thing or a person is absolutely as it should be or ought to be, nothing less than that. So when you read through Romans, and we read that through faith in Christ's provision for us, we are justified before God, that's the same word. Righteous and justified come from the same word in Greek. When God looks at us and says, I count you justified, He says because we're in Christ, Christ is everything He should be and nothing He shouldn't be. Because we're in His perfections, God says you are everything you should be and nothing you shouldn't be. You are justified, you are righteous in my eyes, everything you ought to be. That's the same word Paul's using here that when Paul brings up God's justice in judgment, as well as His mercy and grace in reward, Paul says in both directions, God is absolutely righteous. His judgment is everything it should be, nothing it shouldn't be. His rewards or the display of His mercy and grace are everything they should be and nothing they shouldn't be. It's absolutely the same thought absolutely god judges sinners and he rewards saints and in both directions paul says he's righteous he gets it right in both directions now in second peter chapter 2 peter brings up the same subject and peter was telling the church in his day you guys are going to see some fellows come in in the future they're false prophets They're false teachers. This is what they'll look like. And rest assured that God is going to judge them. So Peter's talking about these false leaders that would come into the church and he says, God will judge them. And in that context of God judging these impersonators, he says in verses 4-9, through as examples. Peter looks back in history and he says, God has judged and God has saved in the past. And that template that we can see historically assures us of what He'll do in the future as well. So in 2 Peter, it says God chained fallen angels in Tartarus where they are awaiting a final judgment. Some of the angels, Peter says, have been chained up under God's judgment awaiting their final judgment. That's happened historically historically. Peter says. He also looks back and says, God flooded the world in Noah's day. The world, if you remember Genesis 6, was filled with violence and murder. Frankly, looked a lot like our world today. And so in judgment, God wiped out the world that was in the flood. And at that same time, He rescued Noah. God's judgment and God's deliverance in the same story, Peter says. Then also, he says God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, not only grotesque sexual carnality, but also, Ezekiel will later say, just proud, filled with pride. And God acted in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, but in that same story, what happened to Lot and his family? Peter says Lot was righteous and he was delivered. So for Peter, in the context of future judgment, he looks at the past and he comes to this conclusion. God knows both how to rescue his own. It's Paul's theme here in 2 Thessalonians. And he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the final judgment. So Peter's looking at both of these topics too, looks back and says, this is how God's acted in the past. This is how he will act in the future. The reason I'm dwelling quite a bit this morning just on the whole issue of God's judgment at all is because I'm convinced both from my own history, from the world around me, and from other Christians in the church in general that when God is sending rain when we need rain and sun when we need sun and when God is acting in His goodness as I count goodness or as the world counts goodness, we are ready to say, Lord, You're good. And God... You're righteous. But, when God acts in a way that's contrary to our thoughts about how He's supposed to act and what He's supposed to do and what that's supposed to look like, aren't we quick to cry, Foul! Lord, you're out of line. You're unfair. How could you do that? And that's not just the world. That's us. That's you and that's me. Because our minds are unrenewed. And that's what, this whole thing on judgment, it's a... It's a hard pill to swallow. We reject it. We rebel against God's judgment. And yet it's clearly defined in the Scripture. God, you act like we think you should. You're okay. You're a pretty good God. You act in a way I don't think is right. You're unfair, God. How could you be so unfair? Now this comes, of course, because to some significant degree, uh, we just set up an idol of God in our mind, don't we? God is like us. So did you know that God is like me? He's a very nice guy. You know, and when He acts according to my opinions and my thoughts, I think He's he's really good. So, you know, He shares my opinions. Isn't that nice? You know, God created man in His image, and then we return the favor and we create God in our image, and that's idolatry. But that's what we do. So if we create a God in our image, in our imagination, it's an idol, that needs to be smashed. But doesn't it give us a sense of comfort that God will act the way we think He should? So if I have a friend or a relative, and as far as I know, they die rejecting Christ's offer of salvation, I'm looking for some comfort. And I'm hoping things aren't as black and white as God makes it sound. That maybe there's another way that maybe God's soft-hearted in a way that some texts don't seem to imply He is. And I want, I want comfort in that moment. The problem is, a God that judge, does not judge is not God. It's not the God of the Bible. This is absolutely clear. We can't get away from it. We rebel against it. It's, em- it's emotionally uncomfortable in ways we don't want to deal with. And so we create an idol that's like us. And that simply is not the God of the Bible, and that's not Jesus. God is God, and we are not. And He's without apology. And He does not sit in heaven waiting to see if we approve of His version of justice and righteousness. He acts, Job says, and who can reverse it? His ways are righteous and true. He is the final court above which there is no appeal. And this is a good thing. Because God is far more loving and far more compassionate and kind than you and I are or ever will be in our time on this earth. And God also does justice. When judgment and justice needs to occur, God does it just right. No more than it should be, no less than it should be. He does it just right. Now, a couple of examples are there on your study sheet of this. You remember Moses and his life, the story about Moses? Moses becomes God's spokesman to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is the, on the stage of the world in his day. It's the world power. It's the United States of his day. No comparison. And God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh and Egypt and Egypt's gods. And Pharaoh, the texts say, hardened his heart. And God says, that's okay, I'm going to use that because I'm going to display my glory as I judge Egypt and Egypt's gods. And so Moses saw God pour out His judgments ten times in a row on Egypt and on Pharaoh and on Egypt's gods. He saw God act in judgment. And in that same story, he also saw God acting in mercy and compassion because the same judgments against Egypt liberated Israel. God's chosen, God's elect, God's son, he told Pharaoh. Egypt, Israel is my son. In those same acts of judgment, Israel was redeemed. And near the end of his life, when Moses looks back, Moses who saw Up close and personal, both God's judgment and His mercy, near the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes a song. No worries, I'm not going to sing it, I promise. But Moses writes a song. End of his life, he's seen it all. What does he say? Deuteronomy 32, verses 1-4. through Pay attention, heavens, and I will speak. Everything in the heavens, listen to what I have to say. Listen, earth, to the words of my mouth. Everything on the earth, everything that has breath. Moses says, listen to what I've concluded. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words settle like dew, like gentle rain on new grass and showers on tender plants. You know, when the rain falls... It slowly saturates the soil, and as it does, it brings life. That's what Moses is saying. Let this settle into your minds and your souls. Let what I'm about to tell you settle in. It will bring life to you. For I will proclaim Yahweh's name. I will declare the greatness of our God, the rock, the immovable one, the one that doesn't change. That's who I'm declaring, Moses says. His work is is perfect. All his ways are entirely just. A faithful God without prejudice or partiality or injustice, he is righteous and true. When Moses looks back and he sees God's actions in judgment and actually both in the life of Israel disciplinary in the wilderness but most especially on Egypt, as well as God's saving grace to the nation, he says, wow, Lord, in both directions you get it absolutely right. And he tells us this is a truth that brought into our souls, understood and apprehended, will bring life to us to understand that God does judgment and he does mercy perfectly, both directions. When you get to the end of the Bible, Deuteronomy near the front, go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 16, this is another passage about judgment. And there's an observation in this passage on how God's judgment stacked up. So in Revelation 16, there are bowls. These are called bowl judgments being poured out. Each bowl represents another judgment of God on the earth. And on this one it says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. That would be the fresh water on the earth. And they became blood, just like the first plague against Egypt. I heard the angel of the waters say to God, You are righteous, who is and who was the Holy One, for you have decided these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. Or it's appropriate. Then I heard someone from the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The picture on earth is that God's followers are being slaughtered. Their blood is being poured out violently on the earth by God's opponents and enemies. And the angel and the voice from the altar both say, Lord, they shed blood and You gave them blood. The sentence, the judgment, was absolutely correspondent to their sin. It was perfect. The angel and the voice from the altar say. So Moses looks back. The angels and the voices from heaven look at God's judgment and His mercy and they say, Lord, Every time you get this absolutely right, your judgment is exactly what it should be. No more and no less. Now, we tend, it is totally understandable, that if I think of someone that I know right now who rejects the gospel, God's offer of mercy in Christ, I feel sympathetic. I feel empathetic towards that person. The truth is, I don't want God's judgment to fall on them. Because I wouldn't wish that for myself. I wouldn't wish God's perfect judgment on anyone. I have sympathy for those who have not accepted Christ. I'm empathetic. And frankly, that's exactly as it should be. We're not reading it this morning, but there's another story in the Pentateuch in which God tells Moses, listen, I'm so angry with the nation, I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says to God, Lord, take me and spare them. You see, because Moses had God's heart, so Moses says, Lord, would you instead, would you, would you take me? Because I care so much about them, I want you to spare them. And so God tells Moses what he's going to do. He doesn't wipe out the nation. You've got this compassion from someone who'd seen God's judgment and seen His mercy, and he says, I don't want that for anyone. I don't want judgment for anyone. Also later in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, which is filled with God's judgment, Ezekiel was a prophet that was one of the captives, just like Daniel. He lived in Jerusalem. He was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar taken to Babylon. He lived through, he saw in a prophet's eye, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the glory of God leave the temple. He saw God act in judgment. But three times in Ezekiel, God says to and through Ezekiel, He says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should repent or turn and be saved, and live. Three times in a prophetic book about God's judgment, God says, guys, don't misunderstand. It's not my pleasure when the wicked die. It doesn't inherently please me to dish out judgment on those who oppose me. My preference, what I delight in is mercy, rather that the wicked would repent, they would return, and they would live. That's God's heart expressed through Ezekiel. Also, you see exactly that same thought in Paul two times in the book of Romans. You know, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's Jewish. He knows lots of Jews. He has lots of Jewish relatives. And when he looks at the unsaved Jews, he feels the same way Moses did. He says, Lord, I don't want them to die. I don't want their end to be your judgment. I want you to save them. So he says in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, I have intense sorrow, I have continual anguish in my heart because I wish that I was cursed and cut off from Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Paul says if it were possible that my death would save my fellow countrymen, I'd do it just like Moses because I don't want them to die. I don't want them to end under God's judgment. You see the same thing in Romans 10:1, 1, one chapter later, brother, my heart's desire, my prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Paul says bottom line, I just want them to be saved. This is the issue. For us to be empathetic and sympathetic to others who don't know Christ is appropriate. It's Christ's heart. It's God's heart. You see it in Moses. You see it in Paul. It's a good thing. This is the catch. This is the catch. We cannot confuse the desire for the unrighteous to turn and be saved with the thought that God won't judge the unrighteous or that his judgment of the unrighteous will somehow be unfair. Let me say that again. We cannot confuse the desire for the unrighteous to be saved with the thought that God will not judge the unrighteous or that his judgment on the unrighteous will be anything less than fair and just. We can't confuse those two. Sympathy, empathy, and by the way, clear proclamation of the gospel to those folks we know and love. This should be a given. I know as Christians, we still want the world to think we're nice people. And if we share the gospel, people will think we're weird. Guys, the most loving thing we can do for anyone that's not saved is share the gospel. Is simply to tell them, this is your state before God, and this is what God has done in Christ on your behalf, and you need to repent. And believe the gospel or your end is judgment it's the kindest most loving thing we can ever do for someone who doesn't know Christ so God help us to be faithful to share the gospel and not care what a friend or a relative or the world around us thinks eternity is in the balance now that God knows how to do justice and mercy perfectly equally well in both directions is most fully demonstrated in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's sort of impossible to focus too much on Jesus' death and resurrection. If you've been a Christian a long time and depending Baptist circles or whatever kind of group you may have come from, sometimes we, we have Christianese, we have Christians speak the gospel, you know, we just use this, the gospel. And in ways sometimes it's like someone else thinks, what do they mean by that? You know, What, what do you mean by that? the gospel. It's impossible though to focus too much on Jesus' death and resurrection because it is not only the means of our salvation but it is the fullest demonstration of God's perfections. So, in creation God creates man. He creates all of our first ancestors Adam and Eve because He wants to have fellowship with them. He gives them life so they can enjoy life together and remember that life is union with God. Death, is separation from God. But they sin, and through that sin, their fellowship with God is cut off. Now, God is a God of mercy and compassion, and He wants to restore them, but how can a perfectly righteous, just God simply overlook the sins of these people? Their sins call for judgment. But God loves them, and He he is full of mercy and compassion. So how can He satisfy both His absolute righteousness and His desire to show mercy and compassion. How can those two things be met? And of course they're fully and equally met in Jesus' death and resurrection. Death on the cross, resurrection from the grave. So that is how God's justice and His mercy are fully met. Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection. That's the apex of all history. It's the, center par- it's the center point of anything you can consider in life is Jesus' death and resurrection. It answers so many questions both we have and the world has about God's goodness and love, His justice and righteousness. They're all answered in Jesus' death and resurrection. So God was righteous when He put our penalty, His wrath, our punishment on Jesus on the cross. Jesus was a perfect, sinless, willing substitute. God was righteous when He judged Jesus on the cross for our sins. God was righteous when He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' death really did satisfy God's righteous judgment. And so Jesus' resurrection, Paul tells us, that was the display that the sacrifice was adequate. Jesus' death fulfilled God's righteous judgment. So God had to raise him from the dead. It displayed God's righteousness. God is righteous. This is mind-blowing. God is righteous when He declares you and me righteous in Christ. He's righteous when He does this. You know, that's a consolation to your soul, isn't it? When you and I sin, like we do every day, sometimes every moment of every day, it seems like we're fully unrighteous, doesn't it? But God looks at us because we're in Christ and He says, No, my son or my daughter, you're absolutely righteous in my son. That's mind-blowing. But God is righteous, declaring us righteous because of Jesus' adequacy in His death and resurrection. Now listen, it doesn't stop there. Because God is also righteous when He judges sinners who reject His offer of salvation. He is righteous when He makes people who reject Christ's offering pay the penalty of their own sin. That is righteous. Understand this about the cross. If there were any other means for God to save us than Jesus' death on the cross, God would have done it. Because God is a masochist or a sadomasochist if Jesus died needlessly. So God is righteous when He declares sinners righteous based on Jesus' righteous offering. But that also means this. There is no hint. There is no thought. There is no shadow of a hope for someone to be saved apart from Jesus' offering. It's impossible. Do you see the logic of this? If God required Jesus' death to declare us righteous, how could He declare anyone righteous apart from Christ? He can't. It's impossible. It's not that God doesn't love the world enough. It's that it's impossible for Him to declare anyone righteous apart from Christ. There is no other way. Jesus is it. God would be unrighteous righteous if he declares the unrighteous righteous apart from christ it cannot be done it cannot happen god has displayed his righteousness most fully in judgment and in mercy in jesus death and resurrection verse six there he says it is righteous for god to repay with affliction those who afflict you It is equally righteous for God to reward with rest you who are afflicted. God punishes and God rewards, and He does both perfectly. Moving to the when question, when does God do this? This context, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians 1, it's limited. And we'll develop this much more fully. You'll get more of this in Bill's Sunday school class. We'll look specifically more at the when question. When does this happen? When we get to the second chapter of this epistle, but within the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when does Paul say the judgment and the reward occur? You see that at verse 7b and then in verse 10, Paul says, This, the judgment and the reward, will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. When does it occur, Paul says? It occurs at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, It occurs in that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints. So Paul says what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. The first coming was the incarnation. He came humbly to bear our sins. The second coming is His glorious return to the earth in power, great glory, putting down His opposition, punishing sin, and rewarding his followers. And this is the imagery of a king coming in. It's also the way you see Jesus represented in Revelation 22. He's a king. And like a king coming in, he sets things right when he comes in and establishes his kingdom. So Paul here affirms the same things God had said through the Old Testament prophets. The same promises Jesus made in the Gospels. The same promises John, the apostle, gets in the revelation that Jesus would return to the earth physically, bring the hosts of heaven with Him, and when He did so, He would punish and He would reward. We looked at Zechariah 14 and Malachi 4 last week. Pictures of this glorious return. The, the only text I'll look at this morning here is uh, Matthew 24, verse 30 and thirty. One, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, lengthy, one of the lengthiest passages in the Bible, New Testament for sure, on the future and the second coming. And Jesus said there, because the apostles, his friends had come out of the temple with them and they said, "Wow, well, look at the temple. And Jesus says, yeah, it's impressive, but it's all coming down. And they say, Lord, when does that happen? And what's the sign of your return? When are you coming back? And so Jesus says... At verse 30 in Matthew 24, "...the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn." And by the way, Revelation 6 is a parallel to this. They mourn because they know He comes in judgment. And they are not on His side. That's why the earth mourns. "...they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet." They will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So, to the when question, Paul, when does this judgment occur? When does Jesus give these rewards to those suffering affliction now? Paul says it happens at the second coming of Jesus to the earth, at His revealing. In in the Greek, this is apocalypse or apocalypsis. So, if you have an old Bible, the book of Revelation might be called the Apocalypse, Apocalypse. And it just means the unveiling. Jesus is revealed in that last book of the Bible. And Paul says, judgment and reward occur when Jesus is revealed on the earth. In winding down this morning, uh, we need to know, we need to remind ourselves when we're thinking about judgment or reward, that everything God does displays some aspect of His perfection. That everything God does is right and righteous and just and true. And so whatever God says or whatever He does, it reflects some aspect of His perfection. And judgment does also, just like the display of His mercy. They both reflect aspects of His perfection. And without apology, God tells us that He judges just as He ought just as He should, as well as being the God who dishes out compassion and mercy and grace and deliverance and salvation, He also does judgment absolutely well, absolutely perfectly. When Paul was writing to the Romans, he was talking to them about the fact that the salvation they enjoyed was eternal, that they could never lose it. And he wound down Romans chapter 8 on this theme. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But he knows they're anticipating a problem because they're thinking, well, if we're safe, Lord in your love, what happened to Israel, to the nation of Israel? Because there's not very many Jews that are following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So what gives? So Paul takes three chapters to look very broadly at God's program of redemption and the way that took in both Gentiles and Jews. And let me quote from two of these passages as he contemplates how God is acting. In Romans 9, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this, What if God, when he says what if, he means this is true, what if God, desiring to display His wrath and to make His power known, this would be in judgment, Endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction. What if God was patient? He wants to judge because it displays part of his perfection, his righteous judgment. But what if he was patient towards those objects that deserved, appropriately deserved his judgment? He was patient with them. What if he did that? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy? that He prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones He also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. See, in Romans 9, Paul says, God's perfections are on display in His patience towards sinners who reject Him. His patience, His long-suffering is on display. That aspect of His perfect character, patience, long-suffering. But also it's there because he's going to fully show his mercy also. So Paul says he's showing his perfections in both. Patience, long patience towards those that deserve judgment, but mercy and full mercy on others who receive that redemption. And when Paul winds down these three chapters, chapter 11 ends this this topic, he comes to this conclusion. And this is where we need to end as well. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Paul says God's thoughts are so deep, it's as if they're in the ocean so far down we can't see them. We don't have the ability to plumb the depths of God's wisdom. God's infinite and we're finite. The incomprehensible cannot be grasped by us, Paul says. We wouldn't find this out on our own. God has to tell us. He has to show us. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has ever given to Him and has to be repaid? Paul says, who is beholden to God? Who is God beholden to? Who does God owe something to that He needs to take them into His counsels before He decides how to act, and when. Paul says that person doesn't exist. And this is his conclusion. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Guys, whether we consider God in His just, righteous judgments, or we consider God in His mercy, His overflowing mercy, and grace god is absolutely perfect in everything he does and no matter how our emotions struggle against thoughts like god's judgment no matter how much pain and anguish that brings to us as it did to paul this is still paul's conclusion and this needs to be our conclusion god you are glorious and everything you do is perfect and lord we willingly gladly rejoice And humble ourselves to you in praise and adoration because of your perfections, whether we see them displayed in judgment or in mercy. And last thing, if you aren't absolutely sure you know Christ this morning, what a great day to pass from God's judgment into God's family and the glory of His grace. There's no need for confusion here. If you don't know Christ, if you're not 100% sure, if I die today, where am I going? There's only one way, and there's only one answer. It's Jesus or it's not at all. And salvation is as easy as saying, Lord, I accept gladly Jesus' payment on my behalf. I, the unjust, gladly accept the just one's sacrifice on my behalf. We bring nothing to salvation but our need. God provides everything for us. And he does it justly, righteously, fully. Father, help us when our minds are carnal and worldly to embrace truth even when the truth is searing and hot and hard to handle. God, help us to conclude with Paul after we accommodate in our own minds and emotions the truth of what he and others declare that You are absolutely just and righteous in all Your doings, whether that be in judgment or whether that be in mercy. And Father, as those upon whom Your grace and mercy have flowed, we humbly, Lord, bow before You and thank You for the rich and full deliverance You've provided us through Your Son, Jesus. Lord, it is true that to Him and through Him, from Him, are all things. And we gladly lend our voice to praise Him, This morning, in Jesus' name, for his glory, Lord. Amen.